Good morning. As I'm getting set up here, would you turn to the Old Testament book of Micah? It's one of the last of the minor prophets, not minor because he doesn't matter or is insignificant, but because it's short. It's a short book. There are a series of prophets at the end of the Old Testament that are really short, and they're jumbled together and called the minor prophets. Uh, Again, I like to think of them as the shorter prophets. Uh, Over these next few months, while Ross is out, we are going to be looking at all of these, I'm not sure all, but many of these minor prophets, and this morning we're going to look at Micah, and this is going to be part one. I'll be back, Lord willing, for part two next week, um, and we can talk a little bit more about some of the amazing things that God spoke through this man and how that speaks to us today. We're going to fly at a fairly high altitude, so if you are very familiar with this book, with the prophetic words of Micah, and I don't cover something, I'm sorry, we're going to cover an Old Testament book in two weeks, <laughs> so we're going to fly at a high altitude, but this is what I want to, this is my hope, and this is my prayer, we're going to pray in just a moment, and I hope you're still looking for Micah chapter one in, in your Bible. This is my prayer, that when we come here, we come into the very presence of God, that we come into what the Bible describes as a convocation, a holy convocation, an assembly of God's people, and we should come with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so as we sit under the teaching, as I sit under the teaching of God's word, I pray that we would be humble, listen for God, and surrender to him. And would you pray with me right now, please? God, you are holy and you are above all things. You, O God, you alone are the living God and the creator of heaven and earth. And who are we, Lord, that you would be mindful of us? And yet, yet you love us so amazingly. And Lord, my, my prayer today is that your spirit would fall in this place, would fall on me and fall on these people, fall on all who hear my voice, that we might not just come to a church service, but we might come into your holy presence with reverence and awe and a, a, a humble anticipation, a humble expectation waiting for you to move. God, glorify yourself. Glorify your son, and it's in his mighty name we pray, amen. Well, let me see if I can give you a little bit of an outline of where we're going to be headed. Uh, the first thing I want to do is take, to make two quick points to discuss first the role of the Old Testament prophet. I, I often don't know how familiar people are with the Old Testament, and so I'm going to assume not a lot of familiarity. If I, if I assume wrong, I'm sorry, but just understand there are going to be folks who, who can hear this who don't know much about the Old Testament. So we're going to talk about the role of the prophet, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the historical context in which Micah the prophet spoke. I think that matters, right? Any message, any written message has at least three component parts. It's got words, it's got context, and then it has meaning. And sometimes the words have very different meaning based on the context, right? The word bad might mean bad. The word bad 
might mean good. It's all in the context. So I'm going to give you a little bit of that context. And then we're going to look at the two prophetic, essentially the accusations that this prophet Micah makes against two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Okay, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And then we're going to look at, I hope, to see how all of this Old Testament stuff, doom and gloom seemingly stuff, can transform us and can draw us closer to God. So first, the role of the prophet. In the Old Testament, the prophet had a really simple role and probably the hardest job on the planet. His job was to speak on behalf of God and to warn people of the coming judgment. And this prophet in particular, Micah, and, and we'll know, you'll know from throughout the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that when God raised up a prophet, it was not easy. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because he was proclaiming a coming judgment that God was going to raise up another nation and wipe out his kingdom. And that broke Jeremiah. In the same way we're going to see about Micah, that it ate him up for some of the things that he had to communicate. So it's a simple job, and it's the hardest job ever. Simple to describe, to speak on behalf of God, to warn people of the coming judgment, and then to call them back to God. And as you're thinking about that, I want you to think in the back of your minds what warnings are for. Why would God call people to issue warnings? Why do you warn someone? Just ask it. Why do you warn someone? Danger! There's danger. And so it is, it is an indication not of God's desire for wrath, but of his love and his mercy and his care for us that he sees a bad thing coming, and so he's warning us. He sees what is bad for us, and he's warning us to turn. And let me give you a little illustration sort of to think about this. Imagine just for a moment that you are out in the middle of nowhere hiking. You're along the road walking along, and you see a run-of-the-mill-sized pothole. And you see a car racing up the road. And that car is going to hit that pothole. It's an ordinary run-of-the-mill pothole. What are you going to do? Nothing. For an ordinary run-of-the-mill pothole? Nothing. You're not going to do anything. Why? It's not a big deal. What if, though, instead of a pothole, what you know is as you see that car racing towards you and, and racing down the road, you know there's a police officer up the road. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Come on, the universal nonverbal sign for slow down is what? <laughs> Bob's got it, right? Arms 90 degree angle, palms down, and woo, woo, right? <laughs> are we going to do that and hope the police officer doesn't see us, right? And why are we doing that? Because there's a chance that the person might run afoul of the law and we're going to give them some warning. But it's not like we're going crazy about it. It's not us. We don't care all that much. But now let me ask you this. What if instead of a pothole or instead of a police officer who might catch the driver for speeding, what if there's a ravine? What if the bridge that was there is not there any longer and no one knows that? What if the person is racing down the road straight away, really fast, and on their way to jump? They're going to go right into the ravine, and they're going to die. Now what do you do? 
Hands up. Come on. Who's with me, right? Whoa, whoa, you got to stop. Watch out. Whoa. If you got a, fl- a flashlight, you're going to flash the flashlight. You're going to do all this crazy stuff. And the greater the danger, it might just be that the more berserk you go to get that person's attention. Am I right? All right, so when you read the Old Testament and you see what God called these prophets to do, remember I said it was simple job? It was simple in the sense that it's very understandable for the prophet and for God. Crazy difficult for the rest of us. The things that God has called his Old Testament prophets to do are shocking. Marry a prostitute, a known prostitute, right? Some of you will know that story. Go naked through the streets. Who wants to, be, who wants to get that call? of God, right? None of us. The prophet Ezekiel, as I was rereading it again this morning, who had to build essentially a clay model of a city and and physically demonstrate that the city was going to be crushed, he had to build this clay wall and lay on it on his left side for 390 days. Crazy, right? Crazy! What do you think God is trying to do? God sees what is at the end of the road. God sees that the bridge is out. God sees that the ravine is deep. And God sees that we are racing headlong to it. And we need to be stopped. And we need to turn around. Why? Why would God care so much to do this? Ask yourself. The answer is simple. It's because he loves us. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to open up Micah chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 1. And I just want to give you now this historical context in which Micah spoke. So Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. Moresheth is a town. It's a town in a, in a kingdom called Judah. Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. All right, how many times have you read in the Old Testament it was the days of somebody or it was the days of somebody else and you just skimmed past it? But remember what I was saying that context actually matters when you're communicating? Like you want to know what the context is? Well, I thought it would be helpful to share a little bit about the historical context in which Micah is speaking. And it's not only important for Micah, it's also important for other prophets. Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, those three prophets also spoke at the same time. And by the way, let your head start thinking right now. Why so many at the same time? Remember that illustration I said before. So if you look back at the history of the nation of Israel, I'm going to try to do this in as condensed a way as I can. Think about God's people, Israel. Israel did not start out as a nation. It started out as a person named Jacob. Remember, Jacob famously wrestled with God, and God changed his name to be Israel. And when we refer to the Israelites and the Israelite people, we speak first of that man, Jacob, or Israel, And then we speak of his children, which we also refer to as the tribes of Israel, because as their children had children and their children had children, those people, they became each separate, in a sense, people groups, but all part of the nation of Israel. And you may recall that the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and God raised up a man, Moses, to take them out of Egypt. Remember? They crossed the Red Sea, but they, get, they, they disbelieve, and God punishes them and says, you've got to wander in the wilderness for how long? 40 years, right? God, and just as they're at the cusp, at the end of that 40 years, as they're at the cusp of the promised land, Moses dies, God raises up 
Joshua. And Joshua leads the people into this promised land, the land that God had promised to give them, also known as the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites lived. And God said, go in and take it. And under Joshua's leadership, the people went in and they took it. Not all of it. They didn't, take, they didn't wipe out everybody, but they wiped out a lot of people. And they began to have a nation their own nation, not a kingdom, a nation. Why not a kingdom? Because they didn't have a king. Because God told them he didn't want them to have a king. But then the people of Israel looked around and they said, Ammon has a king, Edom has a king, all these other nations have kings, we want a king too. And God warned them not to do it, but he answered their request and he gave them a king. By the way, note to file, be careful what you ask God. Gave them a king. You remember the first king was? Saul. Saul was followed by David. You should know David. The Psalms, the man after God's own heart. Did a lot of bad stuff, but the man after God's own heart. David's son? Solomon. Solomon's son? Rehoboam. Rehoboam. The reason I'm bringing that up is because what you may know is that when Rehoboam became king, the nation split in two. In our own history, think about the Civil War, right? You had a North and the South, and that's exactly what happened. You had a separation between the two nations. The nation on the top became known as the Kingdom of Israel. The nation on the bottom became the Kingdom of Judah. Israel on top, Judah on the bottom. Israel on top eventually got a capital named Samaria. By the way, Samaria, Samaria, the Samaritan woman. I knew I had heard that before. That's what it means. It was where she was from. And the, and the kingdom of Israel also sometimes became known as Samaria. The city itself became, became the, essentially the representative of the entire kingdom. And the kingdom on the bottom, Judah, was named after one of the sons of, the, of Israel himself. That was one of the tribes, the tribe of Judah. Okay, so you've got two kingdoms. You got that? And there is a lot of fighting between the two of them. The kingdom of Samaria, the, kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, was immediately plunged into sin. The man who was their first king was, you know it, I know that Bob knows it, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and he drove the people into sin. He knew that Jerusalem was not only the political capital when the nation was one, he knew it was also the religious capital. And he feared that if he didn't do something that all of the religious services, all of the religious festivals, people would go from his kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, down into the southern kingdom of Judah and go to Jerusalem to worship. And then he would lose their hearts. They would want to reunite and he didn't want that. And so he set up two other cities. It's like, it's like modern day, right? Give the people what they want. Oh, it's closer and there are two of them. You have choices now, right? It's like America. And so uh, he put golden calves in each of those two cities by the way, you're thinking golden calves. Didn't that happen way back in Exodus? Yes, history repeats itself. Sin repeats itself. He set up two golden calves and the people were plunged into wickedness and idolatry right from the get-go. And so the northern kingdom of Israel is on that road racing toward the ravine. The southern kingdom of Israel, or southern kingdom of Judah, turns out it's also on the road. It's just not going quite as fast. And it had more faithful kings. Not all faithful kings, but more faithful kings. And about 220 years after the nation split into two kingdoms, Jotham was king. Ah, Micah of Moresheth. In the days when Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah, Jotham served for 16 years 
Ahaz, who was wicked as all get out, served for 16 years. And Hezekiah, one of my personal favorites, Hezekiah for president, Hezekiah served for 29 years, about a 61 or so year span. So you've got wickedness on the top, some wickedness on the bottom, but on the bottom in this kingdom of Judah, you also have more faithfulness. Remember I said Jerusalem was there? That's the center of religious life. That's where the people come. That's where the priests are. That's where the sacrifices happen. That's where the sacrifices were commanded by God to happen in the book of Leviticus. And so you have this rem- you have more and more, more faithfulness in the southern kingdom than you do in the north. You also have much more formalism. You know what I'm talking about, right? That religion that looks the part, on the outside, you had a lot more of that. The, southern, the northern kingdom of Israel would fall six years into Hezekiah's reign. Remember, Jotham, good king. Ahaz, very bad. Hezekiah, very good. And in the six years, uh, sixth year of Hezekiah, Israel falls. Now, I mentioned that there was a job. Whew, can we take a breath for a second? We just covered a lot of history. All right, I mentioned that when the northern kingdom of Israel fell, that even before it fell, that God would raise up these prophets, right? And he would raise up these prophets. The Bible tells us unequivocally why Israel fell. And if you look in 2 Kings 17, if you have your Bibles, please turn. If you don't, please write it down. And I'd love for you to be looking at these passages because we're going to cover Micah again next week, Lord willing, to look at these passages beginning at 2 Kings 17 and 2 Chronicles 27, which give you the history of what was happening at this time. But we know that Israel was in, the northern kingdom of Israel was engaged in great wickedness because in 2 Kings 17, it says, beginning in verse, uh, seven, verse 7, that the nation was destroyed by God, quote, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against their Lord, their God. And that chapter will go on to say that God raised up these prophets to warn them, to warn them. Verse 17, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. And then the writer of 2 Kings gives a laundry list of their offenses. And some of their la- the laundry list is just amazing. They did not heed the warnings that were given. They went after false idols. They became false. They followed the nations that were around them. They abandoned the commandments of God. They made for themselves metal images of two calves. Remember I mentioned that part? And they made an Asherah, which is a pole, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal, which is a false god, And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. Did you hear that? Did that shock you? They took their children and set them on fire in service to false gods. Now we, in our human way of thinking, ought to be saying, if there is a God, he ought to be taking them out. Well, guess what? There is a God and he did. And so we're going to look right now at Micah chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, to see how Micah the prophet pronounced that this judgment was coming. Remember, I read that list of he sent them every seer and every prophet to warn them. Micah was one of them. 
And this is what he says in, in chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. By the way, spoiler alert, when God says he is a witness against you, it's, it's not going to go so good, right? For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. And by the way, just picture this imagery again. And again, keep using, thinking about that illustration I gave you about the road and the car going too fast and there being no bridge. Think, just picture this imagery. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The high places are not just places that have a higher elevation than others. That's where people would worship false gods. That's where people would do sacrifices to false gods. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria, remember that's a reference to the kingdom of Israel, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. By the way, imagine, that would be like somebody saying, I'm going to take the city of Dallas, which is also known as what? Cement city, and I'm going to make it a place for planting vineyards. What would have to happen for that to be true? That's right. All that cement would have to come out. And that's exactly what God is communicating here. And he makes it even more clear. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Now I said if there were a God and he were just, wouldn't we look at that northern kingdom of Israel and say they deserved it? Listen to how Micah the prophet responds. How this impacts him personally. Verse 8 he says, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable. That's the wound that God inflicted, is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It is reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how an ostrich mourns or a jackal laments, but I think it's pretty clear in that context that he is going to wail. Now, remember what I said. This is over about a 61-year period. Micah is alive when his own prophecy comes true, when it is destroyed by the nation of Assyria. So Samaria is out. That leaves us with the kingdom of Judah. Remember the one that's going slower, the more faithful one? They're observing their religious practices. They're trying to follow God. They're doing all the sacrifices that they were instructed to do. Bring a bull, bring a ram, bring a lamb, bring a goat, bring a turtle dove, bring a pigeon, bring some grain, bring the wine. They're, they're following the rules that God had set. And yet you heard this warning from Micah that this wound that was incurable for Samaria is at the very gate of Judah. So what I want to do is just look quickly at the allegations that Micah makes against Judah. 
without reading all of them because some of it is a little bit, has some imagery that doesn't translate very well. So I'm just going to say what they are and we can talk about it later if you want. But it really focuses on three contexts, three things. Number one, the wealthy oppressing the poor. Ooh. Number two, and I'll read this one. People loving the good life. This is from chapter 2, verse 11. This is Micah's prophecy about what the people of Judah are like. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. What does that tell you? It's all about the party. It's all about the finest things. It's all about the good life. And we ought to be starting to go, ooh. Because while we might say that wicked kingdom up in Israel's got to go, if we start looking too closely at what the allegations are against Judah, it makes me personally a little uncomfortable. And on to, in, in terms of oppressing the wealthy, oppressing the poor, you know what the real focus is? It's on foreclosure. It is January 2019. Anybody remember January 2009? Only 10 years ago? Where the whole nation was introduced to the word foreclosure? About a gazillion times? And the, and the last for the wealthy oppressing the poor is that they were paying bribes to judges. Again, just go back 10 years. Do you remember all the allegations in the foreclosure thing that the banks didn't know what they were doing? The banks didn't have their... I work for a bank. I happen to have some inside information on those points. But I'm talking about the allegations that were made publicly, that there were foreclosures, that it was perceived as the wealthy oppressing the poor, and that the banks had controls over, control over the courts. That's number one, the wealthy oppressing the poor. Second allegation is that judges were taking bribes. Would never happen today, right? And the third relates to the religious professionals. Turns out they're taking bribes as well. It's a different kind of bribe, though. The priests, it says, are teaching for a price. And the prophets are practicing divination for a price. They're doing a little future telling to the highest bidder. Sounds a little bit like the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? Is anybody distinctly uncomfortable about those allegations? Is anybody as uncomfortable as I am as I think through where we are as a nation right now? And I can look upon Israel and be smug and look upon the allegations of Judah and not feel so great. But here's what really surprised me. When Micah makes these prophecies, makes these allegations against Judah and says that God is coming, God will not be mocked, God will judge, listen to how the people respond. Here's how the wealthy respond. This is Micah chapter 2, verse 6. They call out, do not preach. We might say, shut up. And then they say this, one should not preach of such things. Ooh. You hear that? Micah says, 
that he is there in the power of the Spirit of God, that God has given him a vision. And they don't challenge the accusation. They merely say, shut up. We don't talk about that in this kind of company. How's it work for the judges and the, and the priests and the prophets? This is what it says their response is in chapter 3, verse 11. It says, they lean on the Lord. You hear that? They lean on the Lord. And they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They say, we're the good guys. We're the good people. We're the ones, God's not going to do that to us. We're with him. And, and, and like, don't you just ask yourself how? How do they reach that conclusion? And I think there are two very big reasons why and how they reach that conclusion. They give themselves a pass because A, their, religious, their participation in religious practices, and B, well, it's not like they're the northern kingdom of Israel. I mean, by comparison, we are awesome. Go talk to those evil, wicked people up in Israel, the northern kingdom, those sinners. And let me ask you, don't we do this all the time? How are you spending your money? God's got a heart for the widows and the orphans. Where are you shopping? Where am I? How are you spending your time? Let's talk about the Sabbath. What are you going to do today? Uh, Cowboys fans, I get it. You don't need to watch much anymore this season, but... <laughs> Sorry about that. I couldn't resist. How are you spending your Sabbath that God cares so much about? By the way, how am I spending my money? How am I spending my Sabbath? How's our humility of late? How's your humility? How do we think? What do we think about? We are at risk. Do you, I mean, hear me on this. Hear my heart on this. We are at risk of being the southern kingdom of Judah. Do you get that? That we are the people who look at our own religious practices and we look at others and see how bad they are and we say, we're good. Does that hit you like it hits me? Because I got to tell you, this messed me up as I was going through this. But God's call, I want you to hear this. This is important, and we're going to get into it. And Micah, if you want to turn to Micah chapter 6 as I'm talking, God's call here is not to start changing our behavior. This is not Dan saying, start observing the Sabbath and turn off the NFL. Although maybe that's a good idea. You've got to work that out with God, right? God is not saying, stop paying $5.03 for a double-shot latte. I know how much it costs for a reason, by the way. <laughs> because then we would just be exchanging one set of religious external things 
for another set of religious external things. What God is after is our heart. And in Micah, Micah the prophet is going to give us a clue into that. I want you to turn to Micah chapter 6, verse 6, because in this, it's almost like a hypothetical conversation that's happening right here. And in the people who, the, the, the voice of the people says this in Micah chapter 6, verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? And these are references back to all of the Old Testament things, all of the things in Leviticus that they had to do. They had to bring in their oil. They had to anoint the priest with oil. They had to bring in their burnt offerings. And, and this is the question. Hey, Micah, what do we do now? Do you want us to kill more bulls? Do you want us to bring in more oil? That's what we'll do. And then I think, it took me a while to figure this out, but I think then they take a little shot. And it's a little bit of pride on their part. Then they say this, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Which I think is kind of like doing this, Doug. Hey, should I go set my kids on fire? What am I trying to do? I'm diverting attention from me. Where am I diverting it? right back to those wicked people up in the northern kingdom of Israel and saying, go look at those folks, Micah. Go talk to them and tell them how bad they are and that God is coming for them. God hates it. Let me tell you this. God hates abhors. Anybody got a stronger word than abhors? Despises. He hates religious practices with a heart that is far from him. I want to read to you. Remember I mentioned that one of the prophets who was alive at this time is the prophet Isaiah. I want to read to you how Isaiah opens, Isaiah chapter 1, and listen to what God says through this prophet Isaiah about the very same people Micah is talking about. This is Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain, get it? No more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Can you think of a stronger word? Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. Remember I mentioned earlier, convocations, these assemblies, these, these things that God called his people to, to do at a new moon and at a Sabbath. He says, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. You come in here all solemn and you bring your bull and your sin stinks. Is what he's saying. Your new moons, as if he hadn't gone far enough, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. This is God talking. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Get this. Your hands are full of blood. Your hands are full of blood. And so we ought to be asking ourselves, well, then what does the Lord require of us? Pretty good question, don't you think? And Micah has the answer. 
Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Who here has memorized that verse? Let's raise your hand. Okay. Who here has it on a coffee cup? One person. Who here has it embroidered on a pillow? Nobody? Who here has it on one of those cool little artsy-fartsy things of the word that you hang up on the wall? It's not really a painting, but it's kind of cool and tchotchke-ish. Ah, we got one of those. Awesome. All right, three or four. Three or four. Got it. Let me ask you this, because this is one of the most famous passages over the Old Testament. It is, in my view, also one of the most misunderstood. Are we doing it? We've memorized it. We got it written down in all kinds of places. Are we doing it? Are we even considering the depth of what God is saying? I, I just want to walk with you for a, through a couple of minutes of what I think God is saying in these handful of words. The first thing that he says is to do justice. Now just think about that for a second. Do justice. What's coming to your mind? Maybe not a lot. But let me tell you what should not be coming to your mind. Doing justice is not... Hmm, I think I like justice. There, good. I'm good. Or it's not, I support candidates who are all about law and order. That is not doing justice. And it's not even a call to support just causes. Although there are a bunch of just causes out there, there are a bunch of organizations out there that are focused on justice and we should be supporting them. But that's not what this is. This is a call to radical intervention on a personal level. Do justice. Take the initiative. Engage with zeal. Intervene. Be like God. Do you hear it in there? To do justice. How about the next one? To love kindness. A kind. Kind in our culture. It's so nice. Isn't it? Can't we just be nice and everybody get along? And, and then wouldn't God be satisfied if we were just kind? That's not what Micah is saying. That's not what God is saying. Love kindness. Love is an action verb. It's not a call to do no harm. Let me say that again. It is not a call to do no harm. It is a call to affirmatively intervene. To love people. I'll, I'll tell you, Nancy and I, last September, we went to uh, San Francisco for this thing, this church equipping thing. It wasn't exactly a conference. And they take us down to the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. And I don't know if anybody knows what the Tenderloin District is, but place this in your mind. Homeless people, drug addicts, prostitutes, people urinating on the streets, and it's all right in front of you, and there's a lot of it right on the cusp of the financial district of downtown San Francisco. It's like mind-boggling to me. And we're, there, there are four of us with our leader, a guy named Rob, and Rob says, let's pray before we get out there. And we're, we're starting off, and like, it's, it's almost like the staging zone. There are only a couple of people around, right? And, and we pray, and I mean, you want to talk about desperate. We're going to go share the love of God in Christ Jesus with a bunch of people who, they're in a desperate situation. 
And we pray, we're crying out to Jesus. And just as we're about to open the door, our leader, Rob, says, hey, hold, hold on a second, hold on a second. A couple of tips. Uh, tip number one, pray with your eyes open. Lots of people with needles, lots of people with HIV, lots of people who will spit in your face. So just be mindful when you're praying, keep your eyes open and be alert. Okay, have a great day. And I'm with my wife. And we step out into chaos. The guy up the street with a hockey-looking jersey that says Satan on the back of it, where a normal name ought to be. The guy walking down the street who is yelling and screaming profanities at everything, which, by the way, because we talked to him later, I actually think is his defense mechanism, that, so people will think he's crazy and they'll stay away from him. The two women who are sitting down right, and they're leaning up against the brick wall right there, and the other man who's actually kind of nicely dressed in a casual kind of way sits down and later tells, Nancy tells me later, did you not look in his eyes? That dude was so whacked out on LSD, it was unbelievable. And I'm trying to have a conversation with him and tell him about God. And one of the women, she starts screaming and she starts yelling. One of the women, she's like, pray for me, pray for me. The other one's like, ah, I just got beat up, leave me alone. I just got beat up, but leave me alone. And I look down to my left and up the street comes running a man who I am certain was her pimp and is making sure we're not intervening in a wrong kind of way. And that was in the easy part. And then we turn the corner and it's just a mass of humanity. And then Nancy and I met Gus, an old African-American man who's been sitting on the streets for a long, long time. Surprised me like crazy because he used to be a CAD, a computer art designer or something like that. Computer-aided design. And he's laying there in a robe, which is urine-soaked. And he's got open wounds. And so Nancy and I just sit and talk to him for a little while. And then it gets to that point in the conversation where we're going to move on and I have a decision to make. Am I going to touch him or not? And I thought, Jesus touched lepers. I am going to touch this man. And I held his hand and we prayed for him. Then we went and had some other conversations. Eventually, we get back into the minivan. We drive off to a fancy schmancy coffee shop and we got a debrief and I am a I'm just junk. I got nothing at that point. And I'm so ashamed at how afraid I was. I was so ashamed at how domesticated my faith had become. And I thought, I have to be a man who loves kindness. I've got to be a man who loves kindness and who intervenes. And my very next opportunity was just before Christmas. Nancy and I went to Charleston, South Carolina for my cousin to get married. We're in Charleston, cool town, right on fancy schmancy King Street, staying at the Francis Marion Hotel. Everything's great. You walk outside and it reeks of urine because of the homeless men who were living on the street. You know what I do? Don't think I went and intervened. I start figuring out ways to plot my course to cross the street back and forth to not run into any of the homeless people. I don't look any of them in the eye. I act like they're not there. Let me tell you what my wife did. My wife walks into the Starbucks and starts buying people lunch and bringing them out to people. One of us loves kindness. The other of us is a Pharisee. You see why this is hitting home? The last part of it is to walk humbly with God. This is not a call to simple humility. In a sense, it is a call to walk 
in the footsteps of God. See, if I'm walking humbly with God, where he goes, I will go. Where he lingers, I will linger. Where he brings mercy and grace, I should be bringing mercy and grace. And then I should be overwhelmed, as I was at the Tenderloin District, with my total inability to make any difference in the world and my total dependence on God. And that's walking humbly with God. Do you see why this is not a motto? This is not a slogan. This is not a checklist. This is not something you just go do and be okay. Then this is what God requires of me. I'm good now. That's not what God is saying. That's not what your little coffee cup, that's not what my little coffee cup is saying. God is saying in this radical way, you know what I want? I want you to love me and I want you to love others. Sound familiar? What did Jesus say the two great commandments were? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Simply put, we need to love. Great, you got your checklist? Everybody good? How are we going to do that? How am I going to do that? You see, the Bible gives us the answer. It's not that we need to change our behavior. It's not that we need to get new checklists. We need a new heart. We need a new spirit in us. We need a spiritual rebirth. And for those of you who are already followers of Jesus Christ, maybe we need to go back to him again. Actually, not maybe. We do go back to him again and again and again. Not to say maybe I was never saved. Once saved, always saved. I get that. What I'm saying is we need to be renewed regularly going back before God and saying, Jesus, you are awesome. You did intervene and touch those lepers. Jesus, you are awesome. You went and talked to the people nobody would talk to. You went and loved on people. That's our God. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, let me say it this way. Remember that illustration I made at the morning or made earlier in the morning? You might be the person driving along and you think you got a little pothole to deal with. That doesn't need anything radical, just a little, little makeup, a little, little cement, pour that in there and you'll be fine. Or maybe, maybe you think that, ah, I just need a little tweak. I'm going down a little fast. I'll just slow down a little bit. Everything will be fine. The police officer, the law won't get me. By the way, the only reason I can talk like this is because I know how this thinks, because this is the way I can think. And maybe you think, I just need a little tweak, and oh, by the way, officer, that dude's going faster than I am. Get him. Why didn't you get him? Haven't you ever done that? You fly by a cop, you're going too fast, and he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and you're thinking, what's my defense? What's my defense? Did you see that other dude, your officer? We always want to point to the other guy. God is not calling for us to make a little bit of a change because we don't have a pothole and we don't have an issue with a speeding ticket. We are headed full on shore fire to a deep ravine and we are driving hard. And there ain't no bridge. We don't need a tweak. You know what we need? We need a savior. You know what Jesus did? 
again, this illustration breaks down, but you know what Jesus did? Jesus didn't stand on the road and make the universal nonverbal sign to slow down. Jesus didn't even jump around and go berserk and say, hey, look at me, watch out, don't go there. He jumped in front of the car. And every one of us was in it. Every one of us was in it. What are you going to do with that? What am I going to do with that? Do I get out of the car and say, dodged a good one, and then I move on with my life? Do I get out of the car and say, what a coincidence. We were going to die. Something happened. I'm, I'm good now. Or are we going to go back to Jesus and be in awe of what he accomplished for us? Are we going to be the kind of people who don't memorize things and don't have things embroidered on our pillows, but that actually seek to bring glory to God, to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with him? Because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he makes it possible for us to please him. He makes us want to please him. He makes us see that our sin is ugly and he makes us see that in him we are beautiful. to do with this? Are you going to walk out of here? Am I going to walk out of here? And nothing has changed. God is sick and tired of our convocations and our holding up our hands if our hearts aren't His. You think this is hard for you? God has given us the invitation. He's given us everything in his son. Not some civic God, not some set of moral rules, not some voting block. He's given us his son who loves us with an everlasting love. If you don't know him, can I invite you? Look, you're not going to be perfect when you start walking with Jesus, but he is awesome. Amen. And he will change you and love you. He loves you now. Even apart from him, he loves you. That's why he jumped in front of the car. But if you do have him, can I ask, can we get serious about loving this great God and repent and seek him? and love him. Would you pray with me, please? God, I, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord God, for I pray, Lord, that your spirit would descend on each of us that we would not hear a speaker or a message, but that we would hear from you and know you, that we would be transformed by you, that we would receive Jesus. And God, that you would make us a people who intervene, who do justice and who love kindness and who walk humbly with you because of Jesus and by the power of his spirit in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.